transit-oriented development being mixed-use, mid to high density, with the infrastructure actually being uh, integral to the development program, whereas transit-adjacent uh, is development that's freestanding and typically isn't linked very, very tightly to the, the rail or bus uh, transit center uh, infrastructure itself. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello and welcome, everyone. Thanks for joining the show. There is a lot of great information to learn in this next episode, so stay tuned. Today on the show, I have David Leininger who is a strategic advisor of Sasaki and Associates and founder of Leininger Analytics. His insight into transit-oriented and transit-adjacent developments are second to none. David has experience in both the public and private sectors. He has worked as the EVP and CFO of Dallas Area Rapid Transit, DART, budget director at the City of Dallas, CFO of the City of Irving, and almost 25 years in the private sector working on large-scale real estate development projects. (laughs) Needless to say, he brings a wealth of knowledge on this subject. On top of his current roles as strategic advisor at Sasaki & Associates and founder of Leininger Analytics, he also serves on the Transit-Oriented Development, TOD, Product Council and DFW, TOD Product Council for the Urban Land Institute, ULI. In this episode, we're going to unpack the real differences between transit-oriented development and transit-adjacent development. We'll be discussing some of the many benefits that come from the introduction of TODs. We will then finish up by looking at the future of these types of developments and transit in general. As always, if you have enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the show and share with your friends. There will be more exciting conversations on the show to come. Without further ado, let's start the show. Glad to have you on here, David. wanted to jump right into your role as a strategic advisor for Sasaki and Associates, and then kind of your transition into founding Leininger Analytics. Thank you, Matt. I'm pleased to have the opportunity. My role now with them, uh, and I joined them in in, uh, 2018 in the summer, uh, is to work with them on engagements that involve urban transportation systems, transit-oriented development, uh, P3 uh, development opportunities in consideration of or association with transit platforms and that sort of thing in plans and master plans uh, that they are engaged in providing and presenting to their client. Uh, It's a great opportunity for me. I also serve um, uh, to assist them in uh, work in the the Texas area. Uh, They don't have a permanent office here, so uh, I assist them in some coordination functions. They actually are quite active in Houston and a number of plans, and they've 
finished up uh, most recently with some work in Austin. Uh, about 50% of their practice is actually university master plan, and then the balance is really urban planning. Interesting. So I guess how did we'll get kind of into Leininger analytics here in a second, but what what was your road that led up to being a strategic advisor for this type of development for Sasaki? I know you had a foray into public and then you went private for what almost 25 years, right? And then right. got back into the public sector. Can we dive yeah. into what that looked like uh, for you? Sure. Uh, uh, when I came out of graduate school at the University of Kansas, uh, I got a, C- a master's in public administration in city management, and uh, that's commonly referred to the folks coming out of the program as Kusamets. Uh, so uh, my original uh, focus was uh, city management specifically in my first uh, assignment and internship was actually the city of Dallas uh, and back, back in 1971 a long time ago uh, yeah. and <clears throat> was at Dallas for about three years I was actually the budget director when I uh, left Dallas went to the city of Ir- Irving uh, city of Garland ultimately I got to Irving uh, as finance director uh, and uh, really chief financial officer and and Garland uh, ended up going back to Dallas as director of economic development. Uh, so that was my public sector uh, introduction, so to speak, and experience coming out of graduate school. And then I had an opportunity to shift over to uh, real estate development in the private sector with the Las Colinas. I was the first general manager of the Las Colinas Association, which was a large property owner association supporting of uh, the Las Colinas development that was underway uh, in the uh, late 70s and, and, and currently is still there, obviously. And I migrated from there to another group called Trialand. Trialand developed the Valley Ranch, uh, which is where the Cowboys headquarters were for a number of years, until recently, actually. Uh, and then on from there to Club Corp. I was with Club Corp about 10 years. Uh, I originally joined them as a, in a title that they actually have called Dealmaker, uh, doing acquisitions on their behalf for golf courses, uh, city clubs, and uh, real estate developments in which uh, resorts and golf was associated, uh, was the president and CEO of, of a subsidiary called Club Corp Realty for a number of years, did a lot of work overseas with them as a managing director of European business development. And, uh, and in that capacity is actually where I first got acquainted with Sasaki, uh, actually working on a couple projects in France and then in Greece uh, and, and uh, Cyprus. So uh, they had been doing a lot of resort work over there that involved golf and a hotel and, and lot development. Uh, kind of an interesting sidebar, what I really found myself doing, and this started when I was still at Club Corp, was providing uh, a surrogate developer uh, role for their clients, Saki clients, who were in large part uh, landowners, large landowners, uh, families who own thousands of acres, companies who own thousands of acres in resort areas, um, and who had no development uh, experience, but they did have an interest in seeing development occur. Um, so I ended up uh, very often doing the original assembly of the of the team of civil engineers, land planners, uh, Sasaki, of course, always being one in that instance, uh, 
real estate feasibility uh, experts, uh, and then operators could be golf, could be hotel, to pull in to, as a team and then do the original economic analysis and the pro formas to establish uh, whether it was an economically uh, sustainable and viable uh, business opportunity. So that went on for quite a while. And, and, and actually, I moved on from Club Corp to Economics Research Associates as a, uh, ultimately the Senior Vice President of Recreational Real Estate, uh, uh, which was largely involved with uh, feasibility studies, market analysis uh, for uh, what they call recreation real estate it was largely golf, but also marinas, ski areas, that sort of thing. I had an opportunity uh, then to come back into the, uh, the public sector, and uh, that was when I was in my mid-50s, uh, and it, it was a good time to actually get off the airplane, so to speak. I uh, joined uh, the city of Irving as chief financial officer, uh, was there for about five years, uh, got heavily involved in working with DART, uh, mm -hmm. on the corridor that were being uh, in routing alignments for the light rail that was going to be extending through uh, Irving out to the airport uh, and also get heavily involved in several of the, uh, the uh, public-private partnership ventures, uh, the uh, Irving uh, Civic Center and the now the Toyota Music Factory was one of those ventures. Uh, Water Street was another one of those ventures uh, that we put together at that point in time. I joined DART in 2000, very end of 2008, uh, and was there for 10 years uh, and was actively involved there with, first of all, putting together a lot of uh, funding initiatives uh, to support the continuing expansion of the light rail program and now ultimately uh, the commuter rail uh, program for the Cotton Belt, now called the Silver Line, uh, and, uh, and also Two other initiatives, one on uh, uh, mobile payment technologies. Uh, we introduced a mobile technology, mobile ticketing on phones uh, under something called GoPass. We brought an adventure group from uh, Copenhagen to do that with us. And then uh, finally, it was got heavily involved in transit-oriented development uh, discussions, uh, again, uh, representing at that point uh, the, uh, the agency. And uh, all throughout that period of time, I've been an active member of the Urban Land Institute, uh, joined them originally in the early 80s, uh, and they've been a full member since, and then most recently, probably for the last almost 10 years, uh, I've been on a national product council for transit-oriented development, and then locally, I'm the co-chair of the transit-oriented development product council that's active in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So that's a quick tour Yeah, uh, to speak to, I think, your question. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, your background is, I'm not going to say all over the board, but you've got experience in so many different facets, which which makes this really interesting to talk about because you've seen both sides of the coin when it comes to these type of developments, these transit-oriented developments that you touched on near the end. And yeah, it's, really, it's not both sides of the coins, it's the, the multiple sides. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. You put on quite a few hats. We'll say that. <laughs> uh, over time. Over time. So let's touch on uh, transit-oriented development, because uh, that's that's kind of my main focus for this show, is just to get your input. So first off, what a transit-oriented development actually is and, and what the elements of this type of development uh, means to you and your experience? Uh, sure. It's... Uh... 
it's a discussion uh, th that gets a lot of debate. There's transit-oriented development and transit-adjacent uh, development. And probably the primary distinction between them is that transit-oriented development really uh, contemplates a, a, a development strategy where there's a tight integration between the design of the uses at the transit location, the platform, essentially. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so the it, it's, it's really a joint development kind of a thought process. It's by definition multidisciplinary. Uh, it's mixed use. Uh, usually these are a fairly intense and dense, uh, you know, multi-story projects that include almost always residential, office, retail, uh, and very, very often a hotel. Uh, but they're, like I say, designed really as a mixed-use project, and so they're tightly integrated, and there's accommodation being made relative to parking and uh, and drop-off points uh, for bus and rail. Uh, all that gets designed into it. Transit-adjacent uh, development really is, is development that occurs in close proximity to the platform, but uh, is uh, in many ways largely independent. Very often greenfield, uh, could be single use, uh, you know, residential multifamily, uh, could be in an office, uh, could be, you know, some combination. But the point would be that uh, it, it really has much less uh, interdisciplinary uh, emphasis and, and uh, much less integration with the actual uh, you know, rail or bus center that's actually causing the transportation nexus. The transit adjacent projects are you see a lot around uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, Denver, Phoenix, and so forth. They're essentially very often suburban. They're greenfield projects, uh, and uh, they're fairly easy easy for a developer to do because, again, they're less complex. Mm -hmm. uh, and you're basically buying a piece of land, you're putting a use on it, uh, maybe putting a little bit of retail, something like that, possibly a little bit of open space. Some acknowledgement of that proximity by the introduction of, of bike paths and walk paths and so forth, so there is easy access uh, by foot, pedestrian, or bike or otherwise over to the platform. So uh, in in to thinking about it very often, the best way to think about it is transit-oriented development being mixed-use, mid to high density, with the infrastructure actually being uh, integral to the development program, whereas transit-adjacent uh, is development that's freestanding and typically isn't linked very, very tightly to the, the rail or bus uh, transit center uh, infrastructure itself. If that helps. No, that's great. And I've heard both terms and like you said, used interchangeably. And that differentiation, that's helpful, especially if you're not used to hearing that being uh, being talked about. Um, yeah, the, and transit-oriented development, which is um, much more expensive to undertake, uh, you know, just you know, higher density, more capital investment, uh, more complex. Complicated because of the mixed use side and trying to you know uh, conform all your different uses into uh, a common footprint and so forth. It takes more time. There's more entitlement considerations, so uh, higher risk associated with those. Are ultimately uh, there are 
probably more sustainable over the long term because they they really have that close linkage with with the transportation infrastructure, uh, which is much longer lasting and is going to get supported over time. Uh, but uh, it it takes um, uh, a good bit of planning, a lot of money, a lot of patience, really to to get into that particular kind of development. You can see, therefore, you can understand why people tend to. Uh, approach transit adjacent development a little bit more enthusiastically, particularly again in suburban markets. Downtowns, that's different. Uh, they're by definition mid to high density in, in, in character, so it's a little easier uh, to think about uh, in, in a TOD context if you're really into an urban center. Right. You know, before we kind of dig into that a little bit more, do you have any examples of? of TODs and TADs, I guess, uh, transit-adjacent uh, and transit-oriented, maybe that you've noticed here in the DFW area or, or in your various consulting? Uh, well, yeah, there'd be, you know, there's a there's a new project that's been announced and uh, that uh, is down at Woodle Rogers, uh, and it's right there by the Perot Museum. And that's a good example of something that really would be considered TOD. If you really look at the, the development scheme, you can see that there's uh, the new proposed uh, subway system in D2. It goes right through the project. And uh, there's multiple layers there of, of uh, roadways and, and transit ways and so forth. And the, and the project is developed, you know, so it's tightly uh, linked to uh, Woodall Rogers itself, uh, the you know the local street network, and then the and the subway system itself, and and that one is that's uh, a good plan uh, example of something that's in our market. Uh, there are several others uh, that you know the, some people would would probably point to the State Farm project uh, at uh, up in Richardson, mm-hmm. and uh, the. Uh, uh, and that's that's closer to, to transit adjacent in many ways because it's located essentially at the intersection of Central Expressway and Bush, uh, but it also has uh, light rail going through the larger parcel uh, and also now commuter rail coming through it. Uh, and the, the uses, uh, you have pretty much purely multifamily on the Western side of the platforms, and then you have the office program on the eastern side. But uh, you really don't have uh, development uh, uh, over the air rights. Um, it's not. It, it's it's so it's connected, and it's more more tightly integrated. And it does plan and and relate to uh, the platforms that are there, uh, and want to leverage them. But there's also a lot of parking that's uh, structured parking that's introduced there, and. Um, and that's another dimension that transit development presumes that you would reduce the amount of actual parking uh, spaces, I- recognizing uh, that the, a number of people can access the facility uh, via the public uh, uses, the transit uses. So, right. so I would say, and then in terms of a purely a, tr- a transit adjacent uh, development, you could see a number of those uh, on the on the red line. Uh, the, or the uh, you know any of the lines here really, uh, if you go out to the new project that, that uh, is being developed in Irving, uh, where Pioneer Plaza is uh, next to Verizon, uh, the the platform is actually 
right uh, close to 114, and then their project flows back uh, and actually kind of starts at Hidden Ridge and then flows down to the platform. So it's 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 adjacent. It it has a transit platform as an amenity, uh, but it's not tightly integrated. Uh, and and frankly, if you went into if you looked at the uh, the light rail platforms there in the urban center. Uh, they are, uh, it's, again, it, it, there's an, an adjacency argument there. There's most of your projects are going to be transit adjacent in, in these <laughs> suburban locations. Uh, when you get downtown, uh, because the buildings were there first, uh, the, uh, the transit mall that uh, all the lines uh, run through now uh, is, you know, I mean, it's, it certainly looks like TOD, but you, you would say that the, that the, the D was there a lot sooner than the T. <laughs> Right, uh, and so you have to be a little careful about uh, saying that one caused the other. What, uh, and so I, th I think in terms of really studying it, the 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 best examples are are actually the ones that are coming. Uh, you know, there's one that's a an interesting suburban opportunity that's really uh, closer to a TOD uh, than I've seen, and that's what Grapevine is doing right now, the City of Grapevine, with the right. platform for TexRail. Uh, that's coming there uh, through out to the airport. They have purposely uh, put a hotel, office, parking uh, complex together that's that literally uh, has adopted the platform. And and their the experience they want you to have when you when you uh, disembark and or walk off the platform is as if you're walking into the lobby of the hotel. And and their their example that they wanted kind of create in miniature is Denver Union Station. And so it, it, it's a good example uh, in a, on a smaller scale of a, of a purposeful tight uh, integration by design uh, of the infrastructure and the buildings to take full advantage of the, of the platform and really try to leverage off of it. Now, the city is, is really the, is the landowner there uh, that's adjacent to the Texrail platform. And the city uh, is, is assuming really the development risk, if you will, on the uses. Uh, and, uh, and then there's a private sector development team that's actually uh, overseeing the, the physical development and then the ongoing hotel management. So it's a, it's a good example also of public-private venture, where it's right. really public-public-private, you know, Texrail public, the city of Grapevine public, and then, of course, the, the development team on the private side. Right. Hopefully you, that gives you some, some examples. Uh, yeah, and, and you see a common thread with a lot of these developments, or almost all of them require some, some form of public-private partnership to, to make these things happen. Sounds yeah, like that, there's a lot that's involved. A, that's especially <laughs> true. Yeah, that's, that's especially true with transit-oriented development. Uh, you you can't do those independent of the agency because you're literally you know building on uh, aerial rights above the platform. You may be building the platform and delivering it as part of your overall program. There are a lot of uh, real specific uh, traffic considerations that have to be taken into account into account for how you bring buses in and out, uh, how you handle ride sharing, uh, arrival and departure for things like Uber and Lyft, where you park the bikes, uh, et cetera, and then how you flow the pedestrians through. So uh, that's all, you know, horizontal infrastructure uh, and it has to be 
pretty thoughtfully done. Now, as, as you step away from the platform, even 300, 400 feet, uh, you, you, you begin to remove uh, that, that dependency uh, and that obligation to, 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 to have to work, so to speak. Uh, and so uh, that's, that's one of the big reasons why the public has to be uh, one of the investment funding partners. It's not just a matter of, uh, you know, that the uh, that they're going to be the builder, uh, but it, but it, so you can expect that there's going to be a joint investment program that's going to involve the public sector and the private sector. Uh, we can get into a separate discussion about the discussion about value capture that's mm -hmm. created by virtue of this investment in the public infrastructure. But the point is, is that uh, TOD uh, by definition, uh, you're you're virtually uh, in a uh, the governments really don't like to talk about partnerships, so you have to talk about hmm. co-venture uh, <laughs> relationships where they're jointly involved in developing uh, a program. Right. What some of the it sounds like there's these are definitely tightly integrated systems. What more more so the transit-oriented development as we discussed. So with all this work that's involved to make these deals happen, what are some of the benefits? to promoting this transit-oriented development, I guess more for both uh, both the developer and as well as for the public? Well, obviously, a reduction in dependency in the automobile uh, is uh, one of the bigger overall considerations from a, a so-called public benefit, and that then has a corollary of reduction in uh, emissions, uh, auto emissions, and, and so forth. So there's environmental benefits from uh, from a more efficient you know, mode of transportation. It also, of course, uh, changes the way that you can think about density. Um, you can arguably reduce the amount of parking that you would otherwise have, uh, and which should allow more program to be built. You are obviously uh, looking at creating more density, uh, and, and, and it's supportable. Uh, because you've introduced a new transportation mode or modes. Uh, so the, the, the benefits really are you're aggregating a lot more uh, uses in, in, a, in, a, in a really efficient location. <clears throat> By way of example, if you're in a suburban location and you talk about a 10-acre uh, parcel, that is a nice size, but it's not, you know, you wouldn't consider necessarily putting a huge amount of development on that. Uh, you could not even find a 10-acre parcel in a downtown, but you would be more likely talking about a two to four-acre parcel. That two to four acres could very easily have four to five times the amount of density on it in square footage and residential count as that 10 acres in that suburban location. And one of the things, uh, just as a segue, I find it's very hard to get people to uh, who, who are typically doing low density development to see how you do how, how much more you could put on a piece of property in uh, if you did have proximity uh, mm -hmm. to you know in, in adjacency to transit and other infrastructure locations uh, it's one of the things that if the reality of what transit can do in terms of generating that much uh, uh, activity at a single location is to actually uh, make possible a market demand for more density than you would otherwise anticipate in a suburban location. The reason that development 
lower density development occurs in a suburban location is because the demand isn't there for uh, high rise that you know not even mid rise very often very often you're you're talking about two to four uh, story you know office buildings and uh, you know, three to five story multifamily and and that's about what the market seems to be able to uh, support on the other hand if you can uh, if you can get through that knot that is mm-hmm. tied up with congestion and transit uh, transportation problems and create a way for uh, for that location to accommodate a lot more density and intensity of development then you can suddenly see much more density than you would otherwise occur. That, you know, examples of that really are what happened in the urban center in, uh, you know, in Irving, uh, what's happening uh, up in the legacy, in legacy east and west. And and the benefit there, of course, is the highways have given them the, the intersections and so forth and the freeway systems. And now they're coming, they're backfilling with, uh, you know, with public transit. But the point is, is that, uh, that what, uh, good infrastructure allows you to do is to substantially increase the amount of development program that you can put in and and to do so on a much uh, smaller footprint of in terms of acreage than would otherwise occur right that's a that's a great point that doesn't always get touched on is that parking does take up a lot of space and we're seeing some some municipalities release their requirement for certain parking needs for development. But regardless, it, it can eat up uh, quite a bit of real estate. And so not only are you with the transit adjacent or transit oriented, if you have the availability to re- reduce parking and increase your your uh, program, like you're saying, your, your uh, actual structure. And then at the same time, there's got to be premiums that are associated with being as close or, or providing a convenient adjacency to public transit that that also adds value to your to your deal yeah that's and to that uh, that would be the next point that that the the value increase uh, by virtue of having that higher density uh, component translates into higher land uh, prices for uh, land that's uh, closely proximate to a station and higher commercial rents. Uh, Mm -hmm. DART has periodically, uh, does periodically, about every four years, do an update of land values and office and multifamily rents and and as well as retail and all its transit locations. The University of North Texas uh, does those studies uh, on DART's behalf and consistently they've demonstrated that uh, rents are uh, between eight to fourteen percent higher uh, mm-hmm. for comparable properties uh, near transit and away from transit, uh, and land values accordingly are, are ten to fifteen percent higher. So there's no question that you get uh, value premiums uh, both on land and and uh, real estate uh, structures and, and of course rents. So there's, that absolutely uh, does occur. So. You know that's the other reason, and that would then uh, then makes the argument that then uh, that's why a developer might be willing to uh, to contribute a part of that value increase in terms of uh, money back into the infrastructure side just to enable that infrastructure be built and then make that project uh, more commercially viable for everybody. Mm-hmm. One yeah, other that's... thing I would comment 
Working. I, I do want to make one. There is a there is a, a, a particular benefit to surface parking, and uh, and actually uh, low density multifamily, and that is that they are really land banks. Uh, and uh, over time, if the market improves in those particular corridors, those parking lots will get developed into higher density uses, uh, and that's and, and then those apartments. Uh, and that, uh, particularly in growth markets like DFW and Denver and Phoenix and, and, and so forth, Atlanta, uh, th those older apartments that get to be 30 or 40 years old will get torn down and get replaced with uh, you know, density. It's two to three times what was there previously. So there, th that, that actually does happen. And in, in, in Dart's instance, Dart built pretty substantially uh, surface parking lots in support of its rail stations, uh, particularly as they were building them out and they would have these uh, end of the line stations that were into the line only for that segment. And then you go on and build another segment. So they had this, they had these very large parking lots that had uh, 1,200, 1,500 cars. Now they only maybe need uh, 300, 400 spaces. And those are the ones that are now being developed. Uh, the Mockingbird Station just recently announced that they've uh, moving forward with their venture with uh, the Trammell Crow Development Group on uh, taking uh, parking that has been surface parking for decades, and uh, now they're going to put uh, a substantial amount of program on it, several high-rise residential, high-rise office, possibly a hotel. Uh, so there is, they're, they're not terrible, uh, these <laughs> parking lots that are surface parking lots uh, in low-density apartments, but, uh, but there's no question that they do consume large amounts of land. They also uh, create these auto-dependent requirements because uh, in conjunction where these uh, sites are typically located, uh, which is in urban, ex-urban locations, the only way to get to them uh, is by car. So you've, you've sort of created this need for, uh, for more than typical parking. And then, of course, the market now is asking for call center type parking capacities, which is six to seven cars per thousand square feet. Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, and uh, when you run into that combination, you get some crazy kinds of uh, land requirements, uh, unless you go into structural parking uh, from the get-go. Right. And we're, we're starting to see that uh, on our end is um, these larger big box stores, not so much the low rise multifamily or mid rise multifamily yet, but the big box stores are they were pushing the large parking lots for Black Black Friday or your biggest shopping event. Uh, you never see it <laughs> completely full, so they're starting to right. parcel off their their uh, parking lots because there's no need. But you're yeah, seeing well, that I, more in in the multifamily sector as well, or not necessarily. Uh, parcel, well, in multifamily, but... it's more uh, that you're you're taking old two and three story garden apartments and they're being cleared. And mm -hmm. you're, they're replaced with four to six story or higher, uh, you know, density. And and if your market's uh, working uh, right and your locations are good, that is the development cycle that will occur over the decades. Uh, you know, so um, it's so there. It's not so much surface parking is being taken out. Although sometimes you know, the, the amount of parking that was available makes. The, the the densification of those old uh, multifamily units uh, easier, uh, but uh, on the you know on the shopping centers, particularly the big malls, of course, uh, you know they the Amazon effect has has really 
dramatically impacted, uh, you know, how, how how people shop and where they shop and and you know the the event of home delivery, uh, you know, has eliminated the need to even go to the mall. They're changing, you know, the market demand and so forth. But my only point is, is that. Uh, there, there are some urban uh, urbanists, so to speak, that just you know get disgusted if you mention uh, parking lots. Uh, I don't take that view. Uh, I, I do say that well, uh, if you take a longer view and think about it a little bit from the standpoint of is that potentially a land bank and could it does it have a you know development potential in a, in another cycle or two? Uh, and think about that now. It, it may not be all that bad, but. Uh, and of course, structural parking uh, is expensive. It's probably fifteen to twenty-five thousand dollars per space, uh, and higher yeah. if you go underground. Yeah, exactly. So you, you know, that's that's uh, what usually causes uh, surface parking as opposed to structural, just cost. So you know quite a bit about this topic. What sparked your interest, and you, you became uh, you got on the ULI Product Council. And what kind of sparked your interest in in transit oriented transit adjacent developments? Well, it was uh, it was directly a, a function of my uh, reintroduce reintroduction, so to speak, to the public sector when I went to the city of Irving. Up until that point, I'd really been a resort uh, master plan community uh, kind of uh, analyst and financing. Uh, uh, an analyst. So uh, the introduction to transit-related development uh, it just came into my sphere of influence uh, when I got to Irving, and and they were actively involved in trying to assemble the corridor and the right-of-way for the light rail project that was going from uh, basically Love Field out to the airport, uh, and. Uh, I had a fair degree of familiarity with urban development uh, uh, over time, and, and, and because of hotel concerns and so forth. But but really hadn't really locked into the, the transit relationship. Uh, I was more kind of understanding of the highway relationships and the linkages there. Um, so by virtue of the work we did there, and, and more particularly uh, the the amount of time that was invested in. And making sure that the the alignments really went where there was likely uh, going to be an opportunity to substantially uh, add to the density. Uh, and uh, by way of example, uh, there was a very purposeful attempt by the city uh, and the developers in Irving to take that light rail line through the urban center uh, and reinforce the density that could be developed in that uh, that location. Uh, the actual prior alignment that had been proposed by DART bypassed the urban center entirely and actually uh, went out to Royal Lane and would have come across Royal Lane north of the urban center and on out to the airport through office parks and industrial uh, sites and plants, but not, not through the highest density uh, workforce areas. So that's what started me understanding how important that that relationship was and then what the synergies were uh, that were there so that that was and i had been involved actively with uoi for a long time so uh it was just a matter of changing product councils so to speak <laughs> and say, saying uh, uh, i obviously need to know more about this and i had an opportunity to join the trans development product council nationally 
uh, and then begin to engage in interactions with you know, planners, architects, developers, and bankers who were really much more uh, focused on this and really keen on, on seeing it, uh, its support. So you go from there then, of course, uh, to DART. And, uh, and of course, my first role at DART was, was not to be a real estate developer, but, uh, but rather to uh, really understand financing of the, the new expansions. That necessarily got me into looking at value capture opportunities and uh, contributions in aid of construction and making the case that there was a relationship and there was a clear benefit. Uh, and and in, in Irving, uh, uh, the city of Irving uh, actually negotiated with the developers uh, along that corridor from where you, be, you come into Irving all the way out to past the Verizon site. Uh, and uh, most of that right away was contributed by the developer. Uh, DART did not uh, hmm. have to pay for it. Uh, wow. And the city negotiated that, and it was part of that was part of the deal that the, the city of Irving had to make that right of way available, and either buy it themselves or get development donations of that corridor, if they, the city, wanted that alignment to go through the urban center location. Otherwise, uh, Dart was going to stay on the Royal Lane alignment. So. Uh, and, but and the developers obviously were were willing to do that uh, in the end because they could see uh, the the long term benefits of hang, having that uh, you know, virtually billion dollar infrastructure uh, going through their uh, properties as opposed to miles away. Right, that is a heck of a donation, but at the same time, that was a pretty smart smart long term play on their behalf. So yeah, it's. Uh, they do those. Developers are willing to do those sorts of things. They just have to see that it can make sense. Right. See, you've been doing this a little while. So what is a common myth you've heard on uh, transit-oriented development? And uh, how, how would you debunk that myth you've heard over and over? Uh, well, uh, the one, one myth uh, uh, is that... Uh, there's so much improvement in value associated with a platform, rail platforms in particular, that the a percentage of the, that increase in value can be captured for the benefit of the transit agency and pay for the entire infrastructure cost of the whole uh, develop, uh, rail segment uh, that you might be talking about. That just is not true. Uh, and uh, and it, I mean it's a it's a it's a wonderful idea that you wouldn't have to raise taxes, you wouldn't have to uh, increase additional you know, capital outlay from the government side because it's this this miracle of value creation is going to fully offset uh, you know the cost. Uh, there's a lot of studies now that show that 15 to 30 percent maybe uh, the total cost of a of a you know a rail line. Uh, it might be offsite and offset capital cost uh, mm -hmm. by value capture, uh, but it's very market specific, and and so you have to be very careful not to uh, overstate its ability. So I I found myself on the finance side, particularly when I was with both Irving and particularly with Dart, having to slow people down who said value capture will do it all. It's <laughs> helpful and it's useful, uh, and it's a it's a very good thing to factor into the funding mix, but it is by no means 
the majority of financing that can be achieved. So that that's a, you know, that's a, you know, it's one of those uh, magic bullets that people look for uh, that sound like they're pain free uh, <laughs> to everybody involved, and and that just isn't the case. Uh, I, I think probably uh, if in terms of other myths. Uh, it, it probably would be that on the other side that uh, transit-oriented development brings with it uh, the wrong kind of people. And uh, this is the mm -hmm. tougher part of the discussion of public infrastructure, you know, that it's going to suddenly make available to a, an area that isn't currently served uh, access by a full range of the community, and, and, uh, and that's going to uh, generate uh, new problems in terms of crime and low income, and you can you can go through the litany of how that how that works. Uh, it, it, that's clearly uh, born out of concerns that have nothing to do with public infrastructure. Uh, and uh, and you know if you think that whole discussion through, uh, that would be an argument not to build a highway, uh, <laughs> extended out, out into a suburb. Uh, and so forth. But uh, that's very often uh, a discussion that comes up uh, an objection by some some folks. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, it clearly it really isn't uh, associated with the reality at all. And in fact, uh, it's it kind of runs to the contrary. You really need to be able to access a broad income base so that uh, you can bring uh, workforce to these locations that are uh, kind of in the middle of high dollar neighborhoods where uh, there isn't proximate uh, modest moderate income workforce that's available mm -hmm. uh, and and they can't afford to actually get there by car even sometimes so i'm just talking about hospitality workers restaurant mm -hmm. workers you know entertainment all that sort of stuff all of which are necessary and good and vital so so that's a, it's another one that you have to deal with a lot um I suppose, you know, there's probably a litany of these things that you could go through, but those <laughs> are the two that I hear uh, come, that both of them cause me to wince uh, whenever I hear them advanced. I can agree with that. I, I hear that often. And it's a common complaint, though, is that, uh, you know, there's that stigma behind the one, uh, the ridership of these, these transit options. But, uh, you know, most of it's not based on <laughs> reality or fact. Well, no, it's again, it's like saying that uh, you shouldn't uh, let people own cars because uh, they can drive them into your neighborhood. Uh, and it, it, this is it's a silly kind of discussion uh, really to have. And uh, so, it, 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 again, it's one of those discussions that you have to be thoughtful about and and uh, help people realize they have to think through this thing. Uh, a, little, a little carefully, not overstate things. Uh, but there's those things go to public safety concerns and things like that. And, and uh, those can become quite emotional. Uh, and that's that's where that stuff comes from. Uh, the other side of it, probably, if there's a myth, is that uh, public transit is is really a, uh, a, a, a service that is largely of interest to low-income populations only. Uh, and going along with that, there's a, there's a, there's a quote, a bias against bus. Uh, the perception being that people who ride buses uh, are only low income, and then there's a kind of a bias in favor of rail, saying that uh, the rail is a more up upmarket uh, mode. Uh, these are all dangerous biases to show because buses uh, really uh, are very often the 
the best mode of transportation, and, and a lot mm -hmm. of people use them. It's more an issue of, of recognizing that there's there's a lot of people who uh, really do not want to have to drive their own vehicle uh, and would prefer a bus. So the key is to make sure that the bus service is convenient or the rail service is convenient, frequent, high, high, you know, frequent headways, um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and on time uh, and well-maintained. Uh, if it's not, uh, then, then you don't have a whole lot of people that ride it. And the only people that would ride it are the people that have no other choice. But, uh, you know, that's, that's how you get to those, uh, those urban myths. But uh, well-maintained, well-operated uh, public transit systems have a broad uh, ridership support. And it's increasingly uh, important going forward. The, the demand for um, urban public transit is actually going to increase quite a lot. Uh, over the next several decades, uh, and uh, uh, so we do have to make sure that some of these uh, stigmas associated uh, with certain modes um, don't get encouraged. Right. I appreciate you busting those myths for me. I, I, I've heard a couple of those quite often, so it's good to hear what your thoughts were on that. Well, it's just one, it's one person's opinion, obviously, and observation, but I, there's a lot of people uh, in the business who's, with some experience that I think agree with uh, my point of view. Right, right, of course. Well, one last question here. So we've seen the, the past uh, and the present of transit. What do you see the future of uh, transit-oriented development, transit-adjacent development? What do you see coming for that? Well, uh, the shift that's going on right now that impacts all of it is uh, uh, really mobility discussions and the introduction now of some modes we hadn't seen before and ride sharing, the Uber Lyft phenomenon, uh, the e-bike e phenomenon, and the scooter phenomenon. Uh, these are adding uh, some more public modes uh, and some options that uh, really are going to influence, uh, particularly this discussion about the first and last mile and, mm -hmm. and people's options. Uh, there actually are an increasing number of options emerging uh, to allow people to basically get picked up close to where they, they live or work and, uh, and reduce the need for uh, you know, automobiles. But it requires uh, then uh, some design strategy changes because you have to start asking yourself, okay, where do you uh, park the buses and how many buses can you accommodate at one time, you know, near sidewalks, near buildings? Uh, what about those Uber and Lyft uh, pickup points? Uh, mm -hmm. how, do you, how do you handle bikes and all this sort of stuff? And <clears throat> it, does, it does require uh, a, a broader design strategy uh, that uh, doesn't really allow you to ignore those other questions. Uh, and, you know, and say you really do have to think about how these other things are going to work together. Uh, I'm working on a project now in another market that involves a uh, multimodal transit center. And the question that is now just being recognized that has to be addressed is, okay, we get Amtrak and, and commuter rail and light rail and fixed uh, route bus, uh, but we're missing about 10% of the activity is going to be these these ride sharing bike sharing scooter uh trips uh, and uh and 
if they're not thought through in terms of the circulation through the master plan where this is all going to development area where this is going to occur, uh, you're actually going to have a congestion nightmare, uh, which is the exact opposite of what you would think you would have uh, in a multimodal public transit strategy. So it's, uh, you know, the, so that's a big shift. Uh, a big shift is among CEOs of public transit agencies is the shift from uh, thinking about delivering fixed route and rail services uh, and paratransit and shifting over to say, no, your mandate is mobility uh, and getting people from where they are to where they want to be uh, and making sure that they have you know, convenient and affordable options to do that. That may or may not include operating modes that you're, as a CEO, responsible for. But as, a, as an overseer of mobility, working closely with your cities and your uh, DOTs, uh, in a much tighter relationship. So I'd say that's the big thing that is going to be shifting over the next decade in particular is that the DOT, state DOTs, and the big urban uh, you know, city and transportation departments and the public transit agencies uh, are going to have to uh, move out of the silos within which they have traditionally operated, uh, logically, for a lot of good reasons. And they're going to have to actually have to get together on on these micro planning decisions, intersection by intersection. A lot of signal management, a lot of new electronic and digital signaling. And of course, you know, I have mentioned, so now I will mention autonomous vehicles. Yeah. Uh, and, and you layer autonomous vehicles in and there are going to be autonomous buses, autonomous shuttles, uh, individual passenger cars. Uh, there's a whole range of things there that are going to get introduced in. So I would say that going forward, you know, I said, well, how does that relate to transit development? Well, lots of modes, more modes than we've seen in the past. Uh, and uh, working well together, they're actually going to reinforce the uh, the benefit of uh, these transit uh, platforms. Uh, so that will be, you know, that will be the interesting question to work through. Take a lot of creativity and it will... It'll get solved, obviously, in different ways, whether you talk about your, your coastal environments, your so-called legacy uh, markets, as opposed to the, you know, the new uh, uh, metropolitan markets uh, in the middle of the United States. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Technology and integration and all these different forms of transit are, are going to make for an interesting, uh, interesting future here for transit. Yeah, and it's and it's uncomfortable for the people who are in the business. Uh, everyone has is, has to is forced to step outside of their comfort areas and learn some things about other uh, options and approaches uh, that they you know probably many times would say would rather not have to do this. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's just part of the fact that uh, you know we have to adapt to the circumstances. Uh, that we are now seeing, and technology is is driving all that. And of course, it's a uh, it doesn't respect our desire about timing. Uh, it, it moves <laughs> at its own pace. It moves exponentially fast. And it, it, goes, it really does, and it's very disruptive in the near term. Awesome. Well, I appreciate your time, David. I know you're very busy, so I want you to be able to get back to it. But I loved all of our conversation here. It was. Really interesting to see how those different experiences have kind of shaped your career and then your, your thoughts and ideas on transit and transit-oriented development.
Well, thank you for the opportunity to have this uh, conversation. It's an area that I enjoy a lot, and, and uh, it is uh, helpful to have experience you know, in these various different dimensions. Uh, you, you do generally get to a better place in terms of understanding uh, if you do have those different exposures. Hard to do sometimes, but uh, if, you're, if you live long enough, uh, uh, you, you can get there. Definitely. <laughs> well, thank you again, David. Certainly.